All right, here's what we're doing tonight. We've got three topics to discuss. You might remember the three topics I told you last week we were going to discuss. I told you, yeah. Angels. We're doing angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord as described in the scriptures? We're going to talk about what does it mean to entertain angels unaware? And then we're going to talk about near-death experiences. Or as those of us in the know call it, NDE. All right, that's what all the in-the-know people apparently call it. But I didn't find that out till yesterday. So, um, But now I'm in the know. Now you are too. You can throw that around. We had NDE discussion last night at church. All right. Um, so we're going to talk about those things. And they will somewhat relate. But in some ways it will feel like we're uh, driving a stick shift and not using the clutch when we're shifting. It will be pretty abrupt. Okay, we'll jump in between. Okay, so. Let's talk about the angel of the Lord. Take your Bibles, turn. We're going to do a little bit of a Bible drill moment. If you've got a Bible, if you don't, there's one in front of you. I want you to turn, first of all, to the book of Genesis. There you go. Anybody know where Genesis is? Genesis chapter 16, all right? Good. All right. I'm not even there, so you're better than me. All right. Now, here's the deal. All of the angels in the Bible, including Satan and his demons were created by God. They were all in a state of perfection, but Satan stained himself by sinning, and he took a host of angelic beings with him. We don't know an exact number, but he took them with him. And so all of them were created. So every angel in the Bible, either demon or angel, was created by God except for one, the angel of the Lord. That one is clearly distinguished from all the other angelic beings in a number of ways. One is he he is called an angel, but he's also identified with God, even though at other times he's distinguished from God. Now, he has a lot of names. There's the angel of the Lord. There's my presence in Exodus 33. There's the captain of the host of the Lord. There's the messenger of the covenant. And even in Exodus 3, he refers to himself after telling some things to Moses as I am. So we're going to look first at some scripture passages where this angel of the Lord appears, this special designation. The first place that we see it in scripture really is in Genesis chapter 16. You remember in Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and said, I am going to give you a bunch of kids. Your descendants are going to be greater than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, right? And so Abraham starts to believe that, live that, but there's just one problem, and that problem is he didn't have any kids, and he's not young. And so Sarah comes to him one day and says, Well, Abraham, if God told you that, it must be my problem, so why don't you take Hagar and you marry her, you have kids with her, she'll have the kids for me so that God will fulfill his promise because we're about helping God do things for himself. So Mo, so Moses, Abraham takes Hagar, they get married, have relations, and Sarah decides she doesn't like the arrangement anymore. And in Genesis chapter 16, verse 5, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, "You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering." Isn't it convenient how we forget sometimes our own mistakes that cause issues? 
I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord's judge between you and me. That's the phrase you don't really want to use a lot. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do whatever you think is best. And Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel said, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. It's an interesting thing to say from an angel, seeing it sound a whole lot like what God said to Abraham. All right? So that's the first time we really kind of see this angel of the Lord. All right, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Because after that incident, Abraham does have a child, right? What was the child's name? Isaac. Child of Abraham is Isaac. And so he has Isaac, everything's going well. And then one day, God says to Abraham, I want to see if you're faithful to me. So take your son, take him up on the mountain, and sacrifice him unto me. So in Genesis chapter 22, we have in verse 6 that Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son. He carried it to the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, said to Abraham, Father, yes, I just got a question. Fire's here. I see the wood. We don't have a lamb. Where's the lamb, Dad? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And they went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife, ready to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he said. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. A strange thing for an angel to say, seeing it was God that gave the command. Move on to Genesis chapter, I mean Genesis, Exodus chapter 3. We skipped over a passage in Genesis that also has a reference of the angel of God. And that's in Genesis 31:11. You may remember that's the place that um, Jacob, the son of Isaac, wrestles with a man who he also identifies as having seen the face of God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. This is, the scene has shifted. We're now with Moses. Moses has got his people with him, or he doesn't have his people with him. He's fled into the desert because he has killed the Egyptian. He's been thrown out of Egypt. He's in there tending sheep. He's doing this for 40 years. And in chapter 3, verse 1, It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horab, the mountain of God. Verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. So here's the interesting thing. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called down to him. And so... Well, was it the angel of the Lord or was it God that talked to him? It's a good question. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. All right? Let's go to um, another passage of Scripture. 
Let's go to Judges chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. What's the story in Judges 6? Somebody that's already there. Gideon, all right? You remember the story of Gideon? Remember the story of Judges where the people would rebel? They would cry out. God would send judgment. They would cry out for deliverer. God would deliver them through a judge. The people would rebel. God would send a judgment. They would cry out for a deliverer. God would send a deliverer. The people rebel. Just cycle. Gideon's one of those that God sent to help. And uh, in the first few verses of uh, chapter 6 of the book of Judges, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever they planted their crops, people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined all the crops. So you get this picture. Uh, and then you get verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And so you have this point where the Israelites finally cry out to the Lord. He graciously sent them a prophet. The prophet um, comes to him in verse 11 and says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, there are other places. We don't have to turn here, but in Numbers chapter 22, there's this crazy kind of story about a guy named Balaam. Remember that story? Balaam's donkey won't move, so what does Balaam do? He whips him and continually whips him until finally what happens? The donkey says, why are you whipping me? What are you doing? And he says, well, you got to go. And he says, I ain't going. And the kind of his eyes are opened, and who's standing there? The angel of the Lord. Okay? So, that's there. In 2 Samuel 24, um, the righteous judge pronouncing judgment on David's sin and numbering Israel was the angel of the Lord. The same one involved in the slaying of 185,000 Assyrians in 2 Kings chapter 9. And then in Zechariah, both chapter 1 and chapter 3, we see the angel of the Lord. So here's the question. Who is the angel of the Lord? A guy named James Leo Garrett. Now, I'll tell you this about James Leo Garrett. Of people I have attempted to have a conversation with in my life, if I rank the top five smartest, James Leo would be in the top two. Okay? He is brilliant. For his systematic theology class in Southwestern Seminary, for the first semester you bought a book that was 500 pages. For the second semester you bought a book that was 500 pages. And all the class was was him reading the book without reading the book. Just speaking, but you could almost follow along in what he had written. He was just quoting it. James Leo Garrett, in his systematic theology, identifies four theories about who the angel of the Lord is. The first one is that it's just an angel. It's a created spiritual being who acts as an ambassador of God, it's just another angel. Now, maybe it's a higher class angel. There does seem to be ranking in angels. You have people like Gabriel and Michael that seem to be kind of higher level than a normal angel, but that this is kind of the angel. 
There are some people that say, well, what really is happening here, they call it the interpolation theory. What they think happened is that the Old Testament was written, and as the Hebrews started to read it, they started to think, wow, we make God sound a lot like a human being. And so there are places where we're going to add the words angel of in front of it so it doesn't sound like God is wrestling with Jacob or that God is coming down to speak face-to-face to people. We'll just add the phrase angel of in front of. Then there are those people that say it's the instrumental theory, that God just kind of, it's an instrument of God, that it's just kind of a manifestation in some way of his power or his light or communication it's not distinct it is Yahweh God himself okay I don't think any of those three I don't think it's just another angel because there are things that are said in here that doesn't make sense if it's just an angel then how does the angel speak with the authority of God and say things like you haven't held back from me your son It's not the interpolation theory because I believe that the Word of God is the Word of God and that we have it presented to us in a method where it hasn't been edited by humans that are trying to mess it up. It's not the instrumental theory because there are moments when, even though he seems to speak for God, that he seems distinctive from God the Father. Now, most of you, or some of you may have figured out where I think this is. Okay, so who's the angel of the Lord? Jesus, pre-incarnate, before he was here. Now, there are some things that give us some evidence there. First of all, we know Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So when we say the phrase, Jesus is the Son of God, or even when we quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, Begotten there doesn't mean created. It doesn't mean birthed. It just means one and only. That's why the newer versions will say one and only son. Because of what it means. Because they're not trying to play tricks. That's just what the word means. So when we see that, whenever it speaks of, of uh, Jesus as the Son of God, it speaks of his divine essence. It, it really means something like, um, I've talked about in here, that Eli is a lot like me. Okay? I mean, he looks a little bit like me. He acts a little bit like me. His temperament's like me. It's sickening sometimes for me to see how much he's like me. Okay? He brings me drawings that look like what I drew when I was eight. He, you know, just, he's me. And some people would say he is the spitting image of his dad. Or he's a chip off the old block. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to minimize the understanding of God the Father and God the Son. But the idea is... Not that he is the begotten, like he's the birth son, but he's a chip off the old block. He is like his dad in every way. But he's different. He's, Eli is not me. And it's not a good example either because he doesn't have all the same characteristics I do. He is a different person. So we know that Jesus has always been around. There are some people that say, well, it can't be Jesus. Jesus didn't come to the New Testament. Well, he was there before the New Testament. I mean, Scripture teaches us he was at creation. In fact, he was doing creation. The term firstborn and only begotten described Christ's eternal relationship to the Father. Okay? Now, so we have that. We, we know Jesus can be because he's always been. 
The second thing we have is that the angel is called God. This angel of the Lord is called God. When he speaks to Hagar in Genesis 16, 13, he identifies himself as God. When he speaks in Abraham to his son, as we talked about, he identifies himself. Jacob used the word God and angel interchangeably. But then also, he seems distinct from Yahweh, God the Father. The prophet Zechariah had numbers of visions from God, and one of them, the angel of the Lord, actually addressed the Lord. So you have the angel of the Lord addressing the Lord, and if that's the same person, then you've got somebody talking to themselves. And so there's some distinctiveness there. The prophet also taught in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, that the angel of the Lord and the Lord differ. They're both fully divine, but they're not the same person. So you have someone who is God and not God the Father. Four more observations from Scripture that help us to feel this can be true. First of all, the visible member of the Trinity throughout Scripture is Christ. We never see God manifested physically. We never see the Spirit manifested physically. We do see Jesus manifested physically. Second, this is kind of interesting. You may know how many times the phrase angel of the Lord is used in the New Testament? Zero. It's not. Once Jesus comes, that phrase is never uttered again. Third, ministries of Christ and the ministry of the angel of the Lord match. Both were sent by God, the Father, to minister. And fourth, the angel of the Lord couldn't be the first person of the Trinity because you can't look upon the first person and live. So all that to say this. Is it 100% slam dunk sure that the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ? No, because Scripture never says the angel of the Lord is Jesus. But from everything we can put together, it appears that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, when you come across that phrase, is a depiction of a pre-incarnate Christ. All right? Any questions before we strangely shift gears? All right, let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. One of my favorite chapters of Scripture. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't know, all right? Which makes it difficult to pray for us to do as it says in chapter 13, verse 18, which is pray for us because we don't know who us is. But that's okay. Whoever us is is no longer us because they're no longer here. By the way, just for your own thoughts, chapter 13, verse 20 and 21 is a beautiful prayer. I use it in weddings. I use it when we do Lord's Supper as I talk to the deacons at times. I just love it. This is kind of the closing words. It says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of sheep, may that God equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Sometime you need encouragement. Pray that prayer for some other people and pray that the Lord will equip you with all you need to do His will and that He'll work in you what is pleasing to Him. All right? But chapter 13 is Paul, uh, Paul is the writer of Hebrews concluding remarks. And this is where it's almost like he thinks, uh-oh, 
I've got a bunch of stuff to say and I don't have much room. It, it's almost like, um, I don't how many of you remember taking notes in school? Of course, today nobody takes notes anymore. They have their computers. But back when I was taking notes, and you'd get towards the end of the class, and I never, you know, I didn't want to use a new sheet of paper. And so you start cramming all you can onto the bottom of the sheet, and it's, oh, i got to get the, um, and only the really good stuff gets there. Okay, It's like in chapter 13, by the divine inspiration of God, it's like the writer's like, okay, here are the things real quick, all right? And the first thing he says is, keep on loving each other as brothers. We'll come back to that. Verse 2. And do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Okay? Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So what in the world does that mean? What does it mean, entertaining angels? Well, as is the case in Scripture, you can't just take out that phrase and try to figure out what that phrase means without figuring out what the whole thing means. The first thing we have to realize, as we talked about last week, that the word angels just means messengers. Okay? Now, most of the time in the New Testament, it means heavenly spiritual beings who serve as messengers. But sometimes in the New Testament, it talks about human beings who serve as the messengers of God. Okay? So it doesn't have to always mean spiritual beings. I'm not saying that's what it means here. I'm just saying it doesn't have to. And at times it seems there are some scriptures where it may even have some dual kind of meanings. Okay? That they will be messengers of God in a generic sense. Then we have to look at the whole chapter. And chapter 13, like I said, is the last thing. And the first part of chapter 3, the first three verses, are all about hospitality. About taking people in. About warming, uh, warmly receiving people. About helping people. And what we have to realize is, in their day and time, the circumstances made private hospitality almost a necessity for travelers. It wasn't like today, or even a few years ago, when you could get on the road. Like today, we've got it all planned out, right? We went to St. Louis recently. Uh, I waited a long time before making reservations. I didn't make reservations like a week before we left. Susan was on me. When are you going to make reservations? Well, we'll find a place. When are you going to make? We'll find a I was I was hoping they would drop the rates. So I kept looking and watching. I had a price alert set. Okay, But by the time we left here, we had our GPS coordinates set. We had our uh, confirmation with our hotel on it. I had my baseball tickets we we had done all that we had the week planned out used to when i was growing up we didn't have all that internet stuff to do that what we had was a rand mcnally atlas and a holiday in book remember that holiday in book they used to give out that you'd have the little symbols and you'd always look for the indoor swimming pool that was there right and so you had those things and you but you still planned out well we're going to drive about this far and when we get about this far or or we get start getting late in the day, hey, pull it out and see if we make reservations. Well, in their day and time, you didn't travel that way. You got on the road, you started, and you didn't want to stay at the inns. And in fact, most of the inns back then served a couple of purposes. They were inns, and to use a term that wouldn't have been used back then, but today, inns and taverns. They were places of rest for weary travelers, and they were often places with bad reputations. 
They weren't five-star Hermitage Hotel downtown Nashville. They weren't even Comfort Inn or quality choice bed and suites or whatever you want to have. They just weren't good. The picture I get of the kind of places you could stay back then were, were places, from what I've read, and don't hold me to this, but from what I've read, I get these images that are in movies today of like where pirates hang out when they're ashore. Or like in those old medieval movies where the knights would come in and there'd be carousing and fights would start and all that kind of stuff, okay? So you didn't stop at the ends. You relied on people. And what happens here in chapter 13, verse 1, is Paul says, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Does anybody know what the word is that means to love with a brotherly love? I don't, but I just that's just a slip. I actually think I actually think Hebrews is written by Luke. Well, that's okay. You can think that. We'll 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 ask God when we get there. But Paul writes everything else in the New Testament, so I just it sounds like Paul here. All right, so Luke writes or Apollos writes or whoever writes. Keep on loving each other's brothers. Who um you may know the word for love with a brotherly love. Philio, yeah, we have uh, we have a town that we call the city of brotherly love. It's Philadelphia, right? So the word here is like Philadelphia. Okay, so love with a brotherly love. Now here's what's interesting: in the New Testament, the writers expand what that means because in their day and time, it literally meant love with a family love. And so if you had a family member that knocked on your door and said, by the way, I'm going to Jericho and I need a place to crash for the night, can I stay here? You're like, absolutely, you're family. You come on in. But in their culture, they didn't expect if a stranger knocked on your door, hey, I'm John, I need a place to stay. They didn't expect you to say, well, come on in. Take your shoes off. Let's have a good time. The same is kind of true today. If you were at your house and you heard, you opened up the door and it was your son or your cousin, and they said, man, we we had a car break down. This is as far as we could make it. We just need a place to crash tonight. Well, come on in. We'll make it work. You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make it work. Now, if it's 4th of July... And you hear, and you open the door, and it's Bob that you've never met before in your life. And they say, man, I'm just looking for a place to crash tonight. What are you going to say? There's a Holiday Inn down the road. Right? What the writer of Hebrews says in this passage is, you love with a brotherly love. And that means you extend it to anybody that confesses Christ. Because if they are a believer in Christ, they are your brother or sister. There was a writer in about 200 that said this, said, these Christians are crazy. That's not the word he used, but that's the way it can be interpreted. He says, their original teacher, an interesting way to talk about Jesus, taught them that if anybody believed like they did, they were literally their brothers and sisters. And they take care of each other like that. So the writer says, 
show brotherly love. And then he uses a word. This is kind of interesting. Because he says, Philadelphia. And then that, do not neglect hospitality. It's a double negative, by the way. It's not good English, but it's good Greek. He says, do not ever think about neglecting hospitality. The word that he uses there for service is philazenia. And so he says, in your Philadelphia, philazenia. And it's really like the writer is kind of playing a joke here with words. Like, if you really love like a brother, that means you'll be hospitable to strangers. Now, here's where the issue had come. There were probably some people in that day that were pretending to be Christians to get free places to stay. Some of these believers may have been deceived, taken advantage of. And they said, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, it's not going to happen. So they started shutting themselves off to people kind of staying with them. And the writer says, don't do that. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. In fact, at times it may have been dangerous because there may have been people that would have come to the door. Are you part of the way? I am. Can we come and stay tonight? You may. And the next thing you know, you hear. And it's the people dragging you away to prison. Because the persecution was coming and they were doing this to test out where the homes of believers were. And the writer Hebrew says, it doesn't matter what happens, you keep showing hospitality. And then he adds this little qualifier that's unique. Because in doing so, you never know who it is you're entertaining. Now, the obvious thing here that he would have done, he's writing to, what kind of audience is he writing to? Who are these people he's writing to? They're Christians. What's the name of the book? Hebrews. So a bunch of Jewish Christians. So that's why in Hebrews he can talk about Melchizedek and he can talk about Moses and he can talk about all that. And they go, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So when he says, you may entertain angels unaware, they immediately would have thought, oh, you're talking about in Genesis when Abram entertains those guys. One of them turns out to be the angel of the Lord. And the other two are angels. Now, here's the point. I don't think he was telling them, y'all start looking at everybody and goes, I wonder if they're really a human being or if they are a supernatural being in disguise. Let's poke them and find out. The idea is you just do good works because you never know when you're going to receive more than you give. People just got back from Brazil. And if you start talking to them about their experience, I can almost guarantee you if you talk to five of them, you'll hear this at least once. You may hear from all five. There is no doubt that I was blessed more than I gave. That I received more than I gave. What the writer here is saying is, you just do what you're supposed to do because whoever you're entertaining may be a messenger, either supernatural being or human messenger from God. Who will give you more than you can ever give? You just do what you're supposed to do. Here's what F.F. Bruce says about it, and this will be where I'll end before we move on, unless you have questions. F.F. Bruce is not necessarily encouraging his readers to expect that those whom they entertain will turn out to be supernatural beings traveling incognito. I just love that phrase. 
supernatural beings traveling incognito. He is assuring them that some of their visitors will prove to be true messengers of God to them, bringing a greater blessing than they receive. So what does it mean to entertain angels? It just means that you do what you're supposed to do and you receive the blessing of God for being faithful. Questions? What say that again? Angels as always. Yeah, well, first of all, the Greek, those are decisions by human beings based on the Greek text. Greek text has no capital or lowercase. It's just letters jumbled together. And as through the centuries people have done that, they, the people that make that decision say, well, angels or an angel is not a specific name, just like you wouldn't say a man or a woman is capitalized. Okay? So I don't know that that has any bearing on it. Um, that's a good question. All right. One more shift. Anybody read this book? Three, four, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Don Piper. Five, six, all right? Anybody read about Colton Burpo? One, two, three, four, you and two and a half million other people, all right? Near-death experiences, NDE. They're not new things. The first recorded near-death experience comes, anybody know? Probably not. 365 B.C. Plato's Republic tells the story of a soldier who died on the battlefield and was revived and told about what happened in after dying. Okay? So you have that. There's been a recent kind of interest that has developed. Uh, it started long, It started before Don Piper, but Don Piper's book, among believers, Don Piper's book was the first one in a long time that wasn't off-the-wall crazy. Okay, There was a girl that, that wrote in the 90s about an experience she had in the 70s, and she got to heaven, and the Lord told her that everybody should be Mormon, and so she came back and tried to convince people everybody should be Mormon. There was another girl that, that, that went, and she came back, and she started telling people crazy stuff about their lives. And so for a long time, evangelicals, believers in Jesus, hadn't had a good near-death experience story. And so Don Piper comes along, and Don is a minister of education in a Southern Baptist church, First Baptist Church, Pasadena, Texas. He was an associate pastor in another church when he was driving away from a conference in Houston and was in a major traffic accident and was declared dead on the scene by an EMT at 90 minutes later while a pastor was praying for him, began to sing. And he spent 90 minutes in heaven since that's the title of the book. Now, if you get this book expecting to read 210 pages about him in heaven, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because there are 15 pages of his experience in heaven. It's really not about his 90 minutes in heaven. It's about his life before and after the experience. And you don't get a lot of details about his time in heaven. He sees some people. He talked to some people. He doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't get judged. He doesn't walk. He actually never gets into heaven. He sits on the outside of heaven. 
Okay? But then he talks about how he became an encouragement. I don't have it with me, but this book, when you sell, here is, a, here is an amazing thing that happens in the publishing world. When you sell a million books, suddenly people start having other experiences. And so, shortly after this came a book called 23 Minutes in Hell. Not the same experience, and nobody wants to stay in hell for 90 minutes, so they stayed 23. Okay? So, <laughs> and it sold a lot of copies. But neither of them sold near as much as heaven is for real. Okay? Four-year-old boy, Colton Burpo, has emergency appendectomy surgery, never dies, but months later starts to tell his mom and dad about things he saw while he was being operated on, and he had an out-of-body experience, okay? I'm, I'll tell you what I th- I've read these two in the last, I read this one yesterday, and I read this one last Friday, okay? And so I read them intentionally all in a day so that I could kind of get the whole picture in a day. They're not hard to read. They are not they are not Shakespearean level prose or writing. You can read them very quickly, okay? So I'll, I'll reserve some of that for later. Okay, about some some thoughts on it. Um but I have met somebody that's had a near death experience. When I was in Ripley, I got a call from my vice chairman of deacons, a guy named Ed. And Ed said, well, I want you to go visit somebody with me in the hospital. And I said, I'll be glad to, Ed. What's going on? Somebody from church? No, it's not a church member. He said, well, it's somebody that uh, is an unbeliever. And he's about to have his third heart surgery. And the doctors aren't real confident he's going to make it. I said, I'll be glad to. Ed. Is he ready for me to come talk? He goes, no, he doesn't want to see you. He's told me don't bring a preacher, but I'm bringing a preacher. Now, Ed, Ed didn't need a preacher to go with him to witness. Ed was as evangelistic as I've ever seen. Ed's one of those guys I love to death. And he worked in Memphis. The guy was in Memphis. And Ed said, I'll get off work at 2. I'll meet you at the hospital at 3. So we scheduled it, and we met. We met in the lobby. We walked up, and I said, all right. Usually in Ripley, because we had to go so far, if I was going to go with somebody to visit, I'd ask them details about the person on the way if they knew him. But I didn't have that. So I said, just give me a quick sketch. He goes, all right, he has the reputation of the meanest guy in town. He very well may cuss you out while you're in the room, and he has lived a hard life. Okay, let's go. I'm 27. I can handle this, right? So we go up to the room. I sit down with him, and I say, Leon, I just want you to know that I'm a preacher, and I know who you are. And I, you don't have to tell me. I'm ready. Whatever's going to happen, I'm ready. I said, Leon, are you ready because you know Jesus? Or are you? No, I'm just ready. And I tried to talk for a minute. His wife was over there about to cry because she was a believer. And I left. Leon had a surgery, and Leon died on the table for about a minute, minute and a half. I got a call from Ed. Leon wants to see you. I said, I'll be glad to go see Leon. He said, he wants to see you while he's different. So I went down and I sat down and said, Leon, what's going on? He said, I'm ready now. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I'm ready with Jesus now. So tell me what happened. He said, I was being operated on, and all of a sudden, 
I was falling into a black hole. And I could tell that Jesus was getting farther and farther away as I slipped into death. And I cried out at the last moment I thought I could, Jesus, save me. And he said, the next thing I knew, I was waking up. Leon, in two years, was a deacon in our church. He was a testimony of what God can do with a life. If you ask Leon today how he came to know Christ, he'll tell you it was when I was on my way to hell. And he doesn't mean, like, you know, poets, I was driving on the road to hell. He means I was on my way to hell. So what do you do with all that? I mean, I've just described to you a soldier from 365 B.C., 35-year-old, associate pastor, a four-year-old child, and a 65-year-old. He's not a good old. He wasn't a good old boy. He's a mean old boy from Ripley. Here's my quick answer. I don't know. I don't know. Here's something else I can tell you. They're not all true. They can't be. And I'm not just talking about these three or four. I'm talking about all near-death experiences. Because if they're all true, the heaven is going to be messed up. Because they give different accounts of heaven. Even if you read these two books, they're different. Colton can tell you about an hour and a half's worth of stuff that happened in three minutes. He says he was there three minutes. Don can tell you about two minutes worth of stuff that happened in 90. They're different. Now, I'm not saying that they have to be the same and we expect continuity, but if they're all true, it's kind of messed up. George Gallup did a poll and found out that 15% of Americans who had had a near-death experience, and he's talking about had died on the table or almost died on the table, 15% admitted to some kind of afterlife experience. 9% of people that were closing in on that said that they had an out-of-body where they were hovering over their body. 11 said they went to some kind of different dimension. 8% said they had spiritual meetings. And in Gallup's poll, 1% said they had really bad trips. And I don't mean that in the 60s way, that that was a bad trip, man. I mean, they had trips to the not-good place. Now, what's interesting is a smaller study, they found a 20 to 25% when they finally talked to them admitted to having bad trips. But sometimes people came back and they had an experience and they tried to make everybody think everything was okay. But then they found out when they dug deeper, they didn't have a good experience. Here are some common characteristics. There's calmness. There's a pure, bright light. It's at the end of a tunnel. There's an out-of-body experience. There's another realm with spiritual beings. There's a communication with spirits and there's some sort of life review. The life flashes before your eyes. So here's the question. Why has this book sold two and a half million copies? And why has this book sold over a million copies? Why is Oprah in her last year concerned about a four-year-old who's now like 11 in the middle of nowhere out in the Midwest. There's desire to know more? Yeah. Give you two reasons, I think. First of all, it's because we're all going to die. Right? There's the 
tombstone you may have heard about that said, Consider, young man, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be, so prepare, young man, to follow me. To which somebody took a sheet of paper and wrote at the bottom and said, uh, To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. All right? And the point is, if the Lord tarries, and I believe the Lord could come back at any time, but if the Lord tarries, we will all die. And it really doesn't matter what age you are, you might die. I've done funerals in my 10 years of ministry. I officially hit 10 years of ministry in about uh, in less than a month. And in my 10 years of ministry, I've done funerals for people in their mid-90s, but I've also done a two-year-old funeral. So it doesn't matter. I mean, we know that we're going to die. I mean, Benjamin Franklin's the one that said nothing in life is certain but death and taxes. But people evade taxes. You don't evade death. The New Testament word for physical death is necros. It's where we get uh, necrophobia, the fear of death from. Many people fear it. In fact, we don't want to talk about it much anymore. We try to deny it as long as possible. We think we can avoid it. Someone once said, a hundred years ago in America, people never talked openly about sex because it was too private. But they talked openly and joked about death because a large percentage of them were believers and they didn't fear it. A hundred years later, it's totally reversed. Everybody's talking about sex, but nobody wants to talk about death. Somebody said, we don't even say, I'm sorry your husband died anymore. Say, I'm sorry you lost your husband. Or We don't call it a corpse. We call it the dearly departed. Statistics about death are pretty interesting. Every year, 70 million people die. Two people die every second. And the time it took me to tell you that, 10 people died. I mentioned going to the U2 concert on Sunday, and one of the things they did before the concert is they had this huge screen. And some of you saw pictures on the news of this screen. It was mammoth. And they started scrolling all these interesting facts. They had, like, the tallest building in Tennessee. They had all this stuff. But then they started scrolling by number of people who have died this year from smoking-related deaths. And as it was going on, it was just counting up. People who have died today, and it's counting up. Here's the most amazing statistic is that one out of every one person dies. 100%. And here's the second reason. It's not just because we all die. is we don't know anybody that's really experienced that. If I want to know about what it feels like to play football, I know people who have played football. If I want to know what it's like to play a guitar, I know people that play a guitar. If I want to know what it's like to go to England, I know people that have been to England. And I can say, what is it like to go to England? We don't have those people for death. Unless we have people like his books. And for us, they're like a tour guide. Like, oh, that is awesome. We, they got a little glimpse. I mean, there's a lot of confusion about it. And people wonder about it. But the problem is, if we're not careful, these near-death experiences can just bring more confusion instead of clarity. Um, 
I'm not going to tell you the full story, but there was a, a woman named Betty Eady who grew up in American Indian Reservation, and she married at age 15. Before she was 20, she had been divorced, remarried, and had three more children. In 1973, after her seventh child, she had a partial hysterectomy, although she won't tell you what hospital or what date or where it happened. But she claims that she died during that operation, and she didn't write anything about it until 1993, 20 years later. She talks about going down this tube, and on either side she could see people and animals like rushing to the same place as she was going. She got to heaven, and she meets Jesus, and she finds out that Jesus tells her, all that stuff you heard about me is not true. I'm not the same as God. I'm just like you. I'm one of you. I'm your spiritual brother, man. And she begins to see this cool dude, Jesus, who takes her and is her defense attorney in a courtroom that is analyzing her life. And they say, you need to return and tell people about what you've experienced. And so she did. And 20 years later, she did. And she wrote a book, Embraced by the Light, that sold millions of copies. The problem with that is that sometimes we get so wrapped up in the story, we don't objectively analyze according to Scripture what they say. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that any of these are, are, I don't know, obviously I don't know Don Piper and I don't know Todd Burpo. I don't know him. Todd's the dad of Colton. My, my first impression when I read them is that I think both of them are genuinely trying to express what they think could happen. I'm a little more skeptical, just to be honest, of Colton because I have a four-year-old. And six months ago, every night at the dinner table, our four-year-old told him us about his other family that he lives with and gave us details that were absolutely amazing about this other family and that sometimes I was... When he got in trouble, he might want to go live with his other family. And I told Susan one night, I was just joking. I said, when did you have this other family? Well, when I was, not when I was here with y'all, when I was here the other time. And I said, Susan, I mean, if we were people that wanted to believe in reincarnation and write a book about it, we could say, listen, our four-year-old, that's before I knew this book was out, all right? Our four-year-old told us all these amazing things, and we believe that he has lived with another family in ancient Germany. Because he would tell us things, you know? Four-year-olds, as a general rule, some of you read the book about get mad at me probably, as a general rule, four-year-olds are not the bastions of truth. Okay? And that doesn't mean they can't experience things. And I'm not saying that Colton didn't experience heaven. But here's the issue, really, with near-death experiences. Whether they happen or not. And their science doesn't know how to explain them. I heard a story today. I was listening to a podcast about a woman in Atlanta that they had to drain all the blood out of her head because they had she had some kind of thing, and so then they they removed part, her brain from her head. I don't I, somehow they revived her. I, I don't know. It sounded like cyborg kind of stuff to me. But she had a near death experience in the midst of that and described things in the room that she did not see or know while her brain was disconnected from her body. And scientists don't have a clue what to do with that. And I am perfectly fine having things in this world. Scientists don't have a clue what to do with it. All right? So I'm not saying that they aren't true or can't be true. 
Here's what I think. I think that Scripture is sufficient. And that we don't need any other kind of proof. What bothers me is when I read that this is the um, convincing book for people about Christianity. If this is the book that's convincing about Christianity, you're going to have a shallow Christianity. Because that's not the book that should be convincing you. Now, if you read it and you think it's cute and there are times you go, wow, that's, I don't, how did that happen? That, I'm, that's fine. But if you're saying, man, i got to buy one of those for Joe because Joe is having a hard time believing in this Jesus thing. And if I show him this book about the four-year-old, he's going to believe. I read uh, an article by a guy I know pretty well named Greg Thornberry who's at Union. Uh, and this is what he wrote about heaven is for real. He said, when a book becomes that popular, it should expect criticism, which heaven is for real has gotten in spades. But I'm not interested in criticizing the boy, the book, or even his experiences, whatever they were. People have been reporting near-death experiences for as long as anybody can remember. The subjects have become fodder for academic research. What disturbs me are the reports I'm hearing anecdotally from people about heaven is for real, regarding it as powerful evidence for biblical Christianity. One of my friends called me this weekend to say that he received a copy of the book from his in-laws as a gift for Father's Day of a way of, as a way of helping him bolster his faith. His father-in-law has bought dozens and dozens of copies of the books and is using it as an apologetics book. Aside from the fact that, as Bill Hobbles once wisely pointed out, you don't lead with your best weird God story when you're trying to evangelize someone. I'm more bothered by the high regard and enthusiasm many well-intentioned evangelicals are offering to Todd Burpo's book. I'm not embarrassed by the discussion of the evidence for the afterlife, having written about it previously and commending Dinesh D'Souza's fine book about the subject. What bothers me about the reception of this book is what it says about the relatively low view of the sufficiency of Scripture among people of faith today. In other words, it's not good enough for us to hear about heaven from the holy apostles, church fathers, and trusted commentaries on Scriptures. No, we need a little boy sitting on Jesus' lap to tell us that instead. Then we'll believe. And that phenomenon ultimately does not bode well for everyone who really loves the Bible. Pastors, teachers, parents, and even children. All that to say, I'm not trying to say don't go read the book or I don't believe the boy. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm saying is, if you read it just for fun, then read it just for fun. But everything I need to know about heaven is in Scripture. And if you want to read a good book on heaven, go read a book by Randy Halcorn called Heaven that looks at the biblical understanding of heaven. Don't feel like you have to go find out what Colton Burpo, who I'm sure is a fine 11-year-old kid, thinks about it. Trust the Scripture, God's Word, and depend on it. So the final word on near-death experiences, I don't have a clue. But the Bible tells me all I need to know about heaven. All right?